Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are gathered here at Central Campus, and those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in Bearspaw, and in South Calgary. In 1863, slavery was abolished in the United States. President Abraham Lincoln and the United States government signed a legal document entitled the Proclamation of Emancipation that legally set slaves free. However, history tells us that even though the word got out that slavery had been abolished, most slaves just went on living as slaves. They were legally free, but they kept serving the same master. Now, in the book of Romans, which we've been studying together, one of the key themes is freedom, the spiritual freedom from sin and death that is available to us through Christ Jesus. Romans 6 teaches, when you by faith embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, a divine exchange takes place. Based on 2 Corinthians 5.21, in the eternal realm, God takes the sin that is on your account and places it on Christ's account. And it takes the perfect righteousness of Christ and places it on your account. Jesus enters your life and your spirit, which has been dead up to that point in time, is made spiritually alive. And because you are now in Christ and he in you, God sees you as forgiven, as righteous, and perfect. Not because you live perfect in this life or the earthly realm, but because in the eternal realm, you are in Christ and he is perfect. In the eternal realm, that is our legal position in Christ. Now, sadly, many Christians do not understand this or perhaps don't believe it or ignore it. And as a result, they often find themselves struggling and frustrated in the Christian life, continuing to live as slaves to sin. The Apostle Paul expressed it this way in Romans 7.15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Can you relate to this struggle? As a Christian, you and Jesus are now doing life together. And the real you, your spirit, which is now alive in Christ, wants to do what's right and pleasing in the sight of God. But there is a power that, it, that resides in your body and soul, which in this series I'm calling Mr. Sin. There is a power that includes all of the negative baggage from your former life without Christ that continues to tempt you to do what you did before you embraced Christ, which explains why there's this struggle going on inside of you. And so in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul the image that I have in my mind, he's kind of thrown his hands up in the air and he's saying, who's going to save me, rescue me from the struggle and the frustration that's going on in my life? And in verse 25, he points to the answer, uh, writing that his hope is found in the living Christ. 
Now here's the thing, church. In addition to the hard time that Mr. Sin and Satan give us in this life, the main reason that we're frustrated trying to live the Christian life is because we really can't live the Christian life perfectly in our own strength. Only Christ can live it perfectly. And what we need to realize, you see, is that Christ is not, you know, out there somewhere in the distance offering us a system of beliefs or a philosophy of life or a, a list of commands and rules to live by. And while he's spending his time evaluating and tabulating our performance. No, Christ is offering us himself to live the Christian life through us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, what does this look like in reality? What does it mean to live in Christ or to live in the Spirit? Well, Paul addresses that question in Romans 8, which we started to look at last time. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible app and to stand with me and join me in reading a portion of our scripture lesson today, starting in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask now that as we open ourselves up to you, Lord, Lord, that you would instruct us in the way that we should be and the way we should go. We ask that you would remove distractions by your Spirit. And Lord, that you would give us the humility, but also the courage to say yes to whatever it is you're asking of us. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Some time ago, a, woman, a young woman approached me and said, Pastor, I'm confused. Now, when I think of the word confused, I'm reminded of two fellows who were working on a crew in a city north of here. I won't mention which city because I'm sure I'll upset someone. Anyways, one of the workers would dig a hole and the other would follow behind him and fill the hole in. And they worked feverishly like this all day long without a break. Well, finally, someone who had been watching this for quite some time, he couldn't stand it any longer. And he went up to them and said, you know, fellows, I'm confused. I mean, you dig a hole, and your partner comes along and fills it up again. 
I'm sorry, but this just makes absolutely no sense. Can you explain to me what in the world you're doing? Well, one of the fellows, he kind of wiped his brow. He said, well, you see, normally we're a three-man crew, but the guy who plants the trees is sick today. (laughs) Well, that clears that up. Anyway, back to the woman who was confused. (laughs) She said, Pastor, the Bible talks about living in Christ. The Bible also talks about living in the Spirit. It talks about abiding in Christ. It talks about walking in the Spirit. Do all these mean different things? Some of you may be wondering the same thing. Well, the short answer is, with rare exception, the writers of the New Testament use them interchangeably, sometimes in the same verse. Right here in Romans 8, Paul makes reference to the Spirit. He makes reference to the Spirit of Christ. And he also makes reference to the Spirit of God. So with that in mind, let's examine what Paul says it means to live in the Spirit or to live in Christ. First of all, to live in the Spirit means that we're no longer motivated by a fear of condemnation, but a love for God and others. Look at verse 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, we talked about this last time, and so I'm just going to briefly review what these verses are saying. The reason there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is because, as we've seen all the way through the book of Romans up to chapter 6, Christ paid for our sins on the cross, and when we put our faith in him, he becomes one with us. And as a result, in the eternal realm, God sees us as forgiven and righteous. It's called justification. And that is our position. That is our identity in Christ. Now, on the other hand, in the earthly realm, we still have a lot of growing to do, do we not? Which is called sanctification. Romans 6, right through to 8, focuses on that. Now, all of us should have a sign on our back that reads, under construction. It would make us a lot more tolerant, forgiving, and compassionate with one another, and I might add, a lot less self-righteous. But in the eternal realm, we stand in the righteousness of God, and therefore, we are no longer motivated by a fear of condemnation. And if you're a Christ follower, you need to believe that and you need to rest in that truth. Secondly, to live in the Spirit means that you do not set your mind on the temporary things of life, but on the eternal things of God. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. 
Setting your mind on something means that's what you take your cue, your cues from life, uh, for life. It's what you are thinking about all through the day. It's really what makes your adrenaline flow, what's important to you. So let me unpack that a little more by contrasting three desires of the flesh with three desires of the spirit. The first one is this. The flesh urges you to focus on the here and now. The spirit urges you to have an eternal perspective. The flesh urges you to satisfy your appetite and do what you want to do. You know, eat the whole cheesecake. Whatever it is you feel like doing. Accumulating wealth. Having fun. Achieving fame. So you say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, aside from the cheesecake. Well, there's really nothing wrong with that. Unless that is all you want in life. And it consumes most of your time and most of your passion. Verse 6 says, the mind is governed, uh, the mind governed by the flesh is death. Now that is not referring to the end of your physical life necessarily. But it is saying, if you give your mind over to Mr. Sin and your flesh, it will lead to the death of this kind of life that God wants you to experience, including the death of relationships, the death of real hope, the death of love, and the death of your inner peace and joy. On the other hand, the Spirit urges you to have an eternal perspective in everything that you do, in everything you invest your time in, invest, invest your money in, and so forth. Which means that in the midst of making money, in the midst of having fun in life, you're inviting the Lord into that. Like when you're going to even play hockey, for example. You're not just going to play hockey. You're inviting the Lord into that activity. And in that activity, you're loving as he would. You are speaking the truth. And you're serving others as he would. In verse 6, Paul writes, The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. When you live in the Spirit, fear, worry, and anxiety are replaced by faith, hope, peace, and joy. Guilt, shame, and self-hatred are replaced by grace, forgiveness, and the freedom we have in Christ. Emptiness, discouragement, meaninglessness are replaced by fulfillment, satisfaction, and purpose that comes from a relationship with Christ. Now, a second contrast is this. The flesh is fueled by a, a fear of what might be. The spirit is fueled by confidence in what is. When the whole orientation of your life centers around fear of what might be, like, what if he doesn't call? Or what if this deal doesn't go through? Or what if I lose my job? Or what if the economy or the stock market tanks? Or what if the government is conspiring, conspiring to take away our freedom and rights as citizens? 
What if? What if? What if? The fear of what might be. If we're totally wrapped up in all that, that, friends, is the mind of the flesh. The mind of the spirit doesn't focus on what might be, but on what is. The spirit reminds us, I'm a child of God. He has my best interests at heart. He makes no mistakes. He's totally trustworthy, even when life isn't making sense necessarily. The Spirit reminds me to keep my eyes on Jesus and to do what he calls me to do and to leave the rest with him. A third contrast is this. The flesh pushes me to establish my identity. The Spirit encourages me to rest in my identity. You see, your flesh tempts you to constantly be your own God, which means having pushed God out of your life, you have no choice but to devote your time to establishing your identity, your purpose, and your value. And you do that by comparing and competing and making a name for yourself to prove to others that you have value, to prove to others who you are and what you've accomplished because no one else is going to do that for you. It tempts you to bolster this perception through what you drive, where you live, the degrees that you have behind your name, the position that you hold. Unfortunately, one day, you're going to be greatly disappointed because you're going to leave all of this behind. On the other hand, the person whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit has learned to rest their true identity in Christ and in their relationship with Christ. Look down at verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This passage reminds me that I am a child of God, that the Spirit of God is in me, and that I have been adopted into the family of God. This is the basis of my identity and the source of my authority in Christ. I'm not what other people say I am or think I am. I'm not what my, my car or my house or my job says I am. I am who God says I am. And when the vestiges of this world pass away and this dying body of mine lays down for the last time, all that's going to matter is my relationship with God and the spiritual influence I had with others. Because, folks, that is all that I can take with me and that's all that you can take with you. You and your relationship with Christ and whoever you've introduced to Christ. That's it. Sure, you want to be a good steward of all that God's given to you. 
by faithfully exercising the gifts, the talents, the money that God's given to you. But your goal is to be faithful to God, not successful in the eyes of our world. Your goal is to follow Jesus and not to leave a following. And so first of all, living in the Spirit means I'm no longer motivated by a fear of condemnation. And secondly, living in the Spirit means setting my mind and the, on the eternal things of God rather than on the temporary attractions of this life. And then thirdly, living in the Spirit means that I live in total dependence on Jesus Christ rather than on my ability to live a God-pleasing life. Look at verse 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Now let me summarize what these verses are saying. First of all, when you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit in your life. Paul says here in verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. At our conversion, we are baptized with the Spirit by Jesus Christ himself. In other words, we receive the Holy Spirit in our lives. And you say, well, where do you get that idea? Well, in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, John the Baptist, he's referring to Jesus when he says, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and he will live his life of victory through you. However, this is going to require one major thing. It is going to require yielding control of your life to him. You see, this is how Jesus lived when he was on our planet. Now, before I explain what I mean by that, I want to be clear right up front that Jesus is God. Jesus always has been God and always will be God. But we need to understand that during his 33 years here on our planet, Jesus put aside his divine prerogative and he chose to live every day fully as a human being, which required him to live in total dependence on his Father to live through him in the power and person of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we read this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus chose to rely on the Spirit for everything he did. The life he lived, the miracles, the healings, 
and the deliverances that he performed were all done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christ follower here today, I want you to take note that the same Spirit is in you. But here's the thing, and don't miss this. In the same way that Jesus lived in total dependence on his heavenly Father, so God is now calling us as his spiritual children to live in total dependence on Jesus Christ and his enabling grace. So practically, what does that mean? What does it mean to live in total dependence on the Lord? Well, first it means to daily surrender your life to Christ. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, the tense in that passage is the present imperative, which means we are to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit, which also means we are to continually surrender ourselves to his control. Because we have a tendency to kind of lean away from that. To be filled with the Spirit is to submit to the control of the Holy Spirit in the same way that a person who is drunk is under the control, under the influence of alcohol. And so when you wake up in the morning, let God be the first one on your mind. Ask Him to reveal anything in your life that would hinder the Spirit from living out the life of Christ through you. Confess whatever He reveals to you. And then surrender yourself completely to the Lord again and ask him, Lord, please, fill me completely with Holy Spirit today. And then say, Lord, here I am. My hands are open to you. I invite you to join me in this day I'm about to enter into. Take my life and use it for your glory today. And then as you go through your day, Believe that God will do what you have asked him to do. Believe that the Spirit is actually living out the life of Jesus through you. As you talk to friends or to family members or even to complete strangers, trust that the Spirit is working through your words and through your life and doing things you could never do in your own strength. When you're working at your desk, have the faith that the Lord is answering your prayer for wisdom and guidance. Living in the Spirit is exercising faith that God will do what he promised. Faith is not a mystical power. It's not something that we kind of drum up in ourselves. Faith is like a muscle. It grows as we exercise it. And we exercise it by daily trusting that God will do what he has promised. God calls us to do something, for example, to listen to someone, to encourage someone, to pray with someone, or to serve someone. And in obedience, we step out in faith, believing that God is at work 
God is at work living out the life of Jesus through me, through my words, through my heart, my, my act of, of, of kindness. And he's accomplishing things in the lives of others I could never pull off in my own strength. Things that, even though I may never see the evidence of it, things that will have eternal impact in the life of someone. I'm sure that many of you, you know, you, you, you prayed with someone or you encouraged someone and that was it. And then years later, or sometimes a year later or whatever, these people come to you or that person comes to you and says, that prayer you prayed, that scripture you quoted, that word of encouragement you gave, God used to change the trajectory of my life. And you never thought much of it at all. Furthermore, living in total dependence on the Lord means daily seeking his guidance and direction in your life. It means asking the Lord to direct your path and to inform you of where he is at work and how he wants you involved. It means daily reading the scriptures, not solely for information, but to know the truth, to know Jesus more intimately and what Jesus' will is for your life. It means to see every interaction with others, every circumstance in life, be it a good circumstance or, or be it a painful circumstance, as God's opportunity to grow you spiritually. For example, let's say that you're late for an appointment. You find yourself in a lineup at the grocery store. You're at the 10 item, 10 items only lineup. But the clerk is slow, and based on the number of items in his cart, the fellow in front of you is either mathematically challenged or he just simply refuses to read the bull sign staring right at him. And everything in your sinful nature wants to confront him and say something like, look, bozo, the sign says 10 items, not 27 items, 10 items. But just about the time that you're ready to kind of blurt that out, you sense the Spirit of Christ calling out to you, wanting to reflect his patience through you. The question is, will you let him? Will you let the Spirit turn your mouth over to his use? Or will you turn your mouth over to Mr. Sin and let him have his way? And we know where that's going to go. The amazing thing is, each time you yield to the Spirit's call and His direction, and you follow through in obedience, you will slowly be transformed one step at a time into the image of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, living in total dependence means to daily align your thoughts with his thoughts. 
Make no mistake, we will not become more Christ-like in our character if we feed our mind on whatever junk comes along. The human mind is shaped by what it is consistently exposed to, including messages through the internet, the media, through television, as well as the views, the opinions, and the convictions of people in our network. Now, some of these messages are true and healthy and lead us in the right direction. But some messages are false, some are outright lies, and some are toxic. They can erode our biblical convictions and values. They can lead us to embrace an unbiblical view of success. They can lead us to being preoccupied with our needs, wants, and rights. And they can even lead us away from the Lord. John 8, 32 says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, if the truth sets you free, then what does falsehood do? Well, it puts you in bondage. So if you want to live in victory, it is imperative that you know the truth, which again is why it is so important that we're in the Scriptures daily. And that we're hearing the scriptures taught systematically just like you are right now. So if you continue to struggle finding true freedom and victory in certain areas of your life, like for example, if you're facing debilitating fear or if you're facing um, uh, feelings of inadequacy, it's likely that there is a lie, there is some untruth that you're holding on to that is a stronghold in your life. Now look at verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And what Paul's saying here is, is that because the flesh, or Mr. Sin, and Satan are actually set on stealing your joy and peace and even destroying your life. As a child of God, you and I have the obligation not to Mr. Sin, but we have an obligation to the Spirit. We have an obligation to Christ and all that he's done for us to take sin seriously. Because Christ wants us to live a full life and anybody that loves their kids doesn't want to see their kids destroy their lives. You want what's best for your kids, and the Spirit wants that for you and for me. And so he wants us to take sin seriously, to put to death the misdeeds of the body, the lies and the deception of Mr. Sin. And this won't always be easy. But the good news is we're not alone in this. The Spirit of Christ is in us, and with his help, we have the power to say no. We don't need to say yes to Satan and to Mr. Sin. We don't need to listen to that. We don't need to look at that. We don't need to allow the enemy to have access to the members of our body, whatever they may be, for his sinister purposes. You see, every sinful act is committed twice. Once in our minds 
and then once in our behaviors. So if we want to win the battle of wrong behavior, we must first win the battle that takes place in our minds. The person who is walking in the Spirit is very sensitive to anything that is leading them closer to Christ. But is also very sensitive to anything that is tempting them to move away from Christ. Paul isn't playing around here. If we want to live a victorious Christian life, then we need to be serious what we expose our minds to. I mean, look at the aggressive language he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We demolish arguments. That's pretty heavy language. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We deal with it in the mind. Now, the word pretense means make-believe, means to to dream, it means to imagine, it means to fantasize. And interestingly, the ability to dream or imagine is actually a gift from God. The world's best inventions, if you think about it, were created first in someone's mind. But like almost all of God's good gifts, the ability to imagine can be used for sinful and selfish purposes and is often the very thing that messes with our fellowship with God. For example, to imagine yourself being happy and fulfilled in a sexual relationship with someone you're not married to may feel right and good in that moment. But it is to dwell on a lie. Or to rehearse in your mind imaginary conversations, and I'm sure none of us struggle with this at all, but to kind of rehearse and imagine Imaginary conversations in which you verbally slam dunk someone who has hurt you. Folks, that is to literally meditate on sin. That is to fantasize on sin. Paul says here, the battle needs to be won in your mind. When a deceitful, destructive, or immoral thought comes to your mind, don't entertain it. Don't fantasize over it. No, take it captive. Demolish it in obedience to Jesus Christ. See it for what it is. It's a lie. It's deception. Capable of putting you in spiritual bondage. Capable of robbing you of peace and joy. Even destroying all that is good in your life. Not to mention your very life. Have nothing to do with it. Instead, do two things. First, renounce that lie in the name of Jesus and in the words of Philippians 4.8. Choose to move on, away from that. Move on and focus on what is true, on what is honorable, what is right and pure, admirable and praiseworthy. And second, embrace the mission that Jesus has called us to. See, living in the Spirit isn't just about focusing on all that we shouldn't be doing. It's even more so focusing on what Christ is calling us to do. 
It involves more than taking every thought captive from Satan and Mr. Sin, as important as that is. No, it also involves setting our minds on the things that really matter to Jesus. For example, can you remember a time when you were totally engrossed in a special project of some kind? Maybe you're building uh, a cabinet or you're painting a portrait or you were writing a song, you were landscaping your yard. And whatever it is, you were extremely passionate about it. You just love doing it. I mean, you miss meals. That's how much you love doing it. Can you remember doing such a project? I just want you to focus in on that for a moment. If you can, let me ask you, while you were in the middle of that project, to what extent was falling into sin a problem for you? Some of you love sports. When you're in the middle of playing basketball or in the middle of playing a hockey game, do you find yourself struggling with sexual temptation? I rather doubt it. When I'm playing hockey, about the only thing I find myself struggling with is trying to catch my next breath. You see, what I've discovered is that I'm most vulnerable to sin when I'm not engaged in the things that really matter to Christ. When I'm sitting around vegetating, doing mindless activities or activities that feed my sinful nature rather than my spirit. A lot of people seem to be struggling spiritually these days. And I blame that in part because we've been going through this COVID thing. And we've been cooped up. And the big question mark is what, is, what have we been exposing our minds to through all of that? And how has that affected where we're at with Christ and his agenda? Look what Galatians 5.13 says. You were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather serve one another in love. This passage says, one way to avoid indulging the sinful nature is to serve other people. Or just to respond in obedience in, to God's call in your life. Whatever it may be. And it will be about engaging in the lives of others, I can assure you. Living in the Spirit means that you won't wait until you feel powerful and confident in your own ability before you act. No, having determined what it is that God wants you to think about, having determined what it is that God wants you to do, you step forward and you do the right thing in spite of your feelings, in spite of your fears or your sense of weakness. Now, I'm convinced that the reason... Some Christians describe their Christian life as routine, as ritualistic, and lifeless. The reason so many marriages are on life support, and the reason so many families are in crisis, and youth are either bored or in rebellion, is because they're not on mission with Christ as individuals or as families. Some time ago, a married man confessed to me his addiction to pornography that had been going on for years. And he told me how it was destroying his ability to pray, destroying his ability to worship God. He, 
He didn't even feel like coming to church. He said he felt disqualified from serving God. He felt he had nothing to offer anybody else. It was damaging intimacy in his marriage. With tears flooding his eyes, he said, you know, what really busts me up is the fact that over these many years of living life this way, I've missed so much of what God undoubtedly wanted to do in me and through me, in my marriage or family, through me, in the life of people at work, my community, at church. And you know, church, the, the tragedy in your life and mine is not that we have a bent towards selfishness and sin. The tragedy is, is that we who are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God who loves and accepts us, so often gets sidetracked into passionately pursuing gods who will greatly disappoint us one day. And even sadder are those who fail to realize that the same God who empowered and guided Jesus while he was here on earth, the same God who raised Jesus from the grave is alive within each of us right now. He wants to use us to bring joy to the joyless, hope to the hopeless, healing to the hurting, peace to the restless. Embrace that truth, church. It is never too late to change your mind, to repent, and to be used of God to impact others for eternity by living fully in the Spirit. You know, friends, you may think that your life isn't very impressive, but Jesus in you is impressive. Walk that way, friends. Live that way. The King of kings and the Lord of lords resides in you. Let him shine through you for his glory and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and that we love. Would you just bow your heads for a moment and ask those two questions that we become accustomed to asking around here. Where you take what you've heard and you say, okay, Jesus, what are you saying to me? And what is it that you're calling me to do about it? What are you asking me to think differently about, Lord? What are you asking me to step into? Just take a moment.